0: If you were to travel to Ohio, just outside Cleveland, in a small town named Chagrin Falls, and you asked around town, you might hear the story of an ex-waitress named Kara Wood that worked at a restaurant called Drin's Colonial Restaurant. In 1992, Miss Wood was a 17-year-old that was working there as a waitress. By all accounts, she was a hard worker, friendly to her customers, and good at her job, but nothing else really set her apart? But one of her usual customers was a gentleman by the name of Bill Cruxton. In 1992, Bill was a widower of three years and had no children, and Kara was happy to befriend him, for she had lost her father seven years earlier, and so their friendship was mutually edifying. Their friendship lasted until Bill died at 82 of heart failure, at which point Kara received his estate of half a million dollars. Now, I'm not sure if the restaurant is even still around or if the effect has lasted all these years later, but I bet Dren's Colonial Restaurant had some of the friendliest waitstaff around. (laughs) Because who knows what kind of tip their customers could possibly leave them. I'm sure you've heard similar stories of unexpected inheritance. You've seen it in the movies. You've heard it told in stories. But in our present-day culture, inheritance is kind of an odd thing. Our society prides itself on an Ikea mindset where everything is disposable and replaceable. We're also a nomadic society where we have no problem leaving one home or one community or one friend group to establish another. We have no roots in our society any longer. Very rarely anymore do we have heirlooms that hold special meaning. And when inheritance comes, it is rarely in the form of land or family heirlooms, but rather numbers in a computer at a bank that we can quickly spend with no emotional ties. This view of inheritance is very odd in the history of man. Previous generations and other cultures understand land inheritance far better than we do today, and that inheritance is survival for future generations. So I wonder, I wonder if we're poorer because we've lost this understanding of inheritance. For example, can you think of something, each one of you, can you think of something right now that you were given as an heirloom that you've held on and treasure. My guess is that the thing itself that you're picturing is not really the focus for you. Its importance probably comes from what it represents in the past, or of who it reminds you of, or what hope it brings you for the future. My wife and I were blessed to receive an heirloom from my grandmother before her death. She gave us a set of champagne flutes that we were able to use at our wedding and in our wedding toast. When we use them now for special occasions, it's not the glassware itself that brings up emotion. It's the memory that arises of my granny's faithfulness to my grandpa over decades, through World War II, and in raising three kids together. It's the memory of how she lovingly cared for him and did not leave his side as his health declined due to Parkinson's disease. It reminds me of her strength her wisdom that's been one of the most impactful examples in my life, even in the present. For it was my granny that after first being introduced to my wife, Kelly, confidently declared that Kelly was the woman I should marry because she was a prophetess and she knew that Kelly would make a wonderful wife. And it's not the glassware itself, but the story that it tells that gives me hope that I might one day be able to have the same effect on my own children and their future marriages that she did, Lord willing. That heirloom, that practical object that I can hold in my hand, that inheritance, is evidence of something far greater than me or my circumstances. It speaks of a familial story of love and faithfulness in which I am called to participate. And because of that, it gives me a solid anchor of identity and purpose when my current circumstances might cause me to waver. Now, for the Israelites in our text today, they had come to a culmination of the historic tradition of the people of Abraham, the people of the Exodus. And they, too, were about to receive an inheritance. But what we will find is that it was far more than just a simple inheritance of land to farm. It connected them to the story of redemption that started long before them and would last long after them. And most importantly, it speaks to the character and the ultimate faithfulness of the God that they served. For them, over the next nine chapters, beginning with the three that we will cover this morning, the inheritance they were about to receive was an unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. An unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. You can write that down this morning as the title to our sermon. I'm not texting, I'm trying to connect to the computer. (laughs) Paul, it looks like you're going to have to run it, it's not connecting. An unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. Let's go ahead and dive right in and examine this inheritance and see how it ultimately points us to the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look this morning at chapter 13, and the first thing that we will see this morning is our first point. It's that an inheritance, it's an inheritance promised and guaranteed by God. The inheritance given to the Jews is an inheritance promised and guaranteed by God. Let's read Joshua 13, 1 through 7. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Really hammers at home. Poor Joshua, man. Whew. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite, and there are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites and the Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundaries of the Amorites and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise from Baal, Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Libo, Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrafoth Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, we have to admit to ourselves that this next section, chapters 13 through 21, can be a bit dry if we are reading about all these geographical locations of Israel that make no sense to us half the time, we're just trying to figure out how to pronounce the names, amen? And so our minds often check out when we hit these points in our Bible reading plans. We were doing so well until we got to Joshua 13, we think, right? But what if generations ago, my great-grandfather was given a promise by God that one day his offspring would be part of a church that would have a building between McGillcrest and 25th, abutting a vacant lot and a couple of blocks from Mission Street. All of the sudden, It makes sense to us why this is so important. As we receive this building, we would be shocked generations later and amazed at the goodness of God, that the promise would be fulfilled, that we would be standing here as proof and evidence of God's faithfulness and grace. And so all of these markers, as we read them, all of these boundaries, we have to remember while they don't necessarily seem to mean anything to us, they meant something to the Israelites standing in the land. They meant something to the Israelites who were the first audience and judges who were standing amidst these markers going, God gave this to us. They mean far more than just lines on a map. And remember that these were the children of slaves in Egypt and they had grown up wandering in the wilderness due to their lack of faith or the the lack of faith of their forefathers. And having a home base, a place to lay your head at night would be a welcome reprieve. Having a place to raise crops and livestock so that you were more assured of the provision for your family would literally be a godsend. Friends, it would be akin to someone in the United States who's African-American looking back at the generations of their family who once were brought over as slaves and they are now moving forward to attend a university. That The promises had been fulfilled, that the hard work and the sacrifice and even the death had moved forward in provision for their current day. This is what they would see if they read this. But even more than that very utilitarian blessing, the receiving of this land would be a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. It's more than just the land itself. It's the fact that it proved that the God they served was faithful. And we'll look at this in depth as we go through these chapters, but this will be the overlying theme throughout all of them, God's faithfulness. After the exodus that brought them out of Egypt... They wandered for 40 years, and now seven long years of warfare later, God says to Joshua, it is time. I want to make good on my promise to apportion the land to my people before you die. And so what follows is a breakdown of the land area God apportioned, and we can finally compare the difference between what God had promised to give them and what Joshua and Israel had already possessed through battle and what was then left to be conquered. We see this In Numbers 33 and 34, you can see this up on the screen. Would you turn there with me from Joshua to Numbers? And we're going to go through just a few of the pieces to see what God had promised them while they were still waiting to go into the land. In Numbers 33, starting in verse 50. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan... Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. Notice the work that they were supposed to do. The ordinary means was going to be them by which God accomplished his purposes. He says, you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Skip forward to 34. Verse 1, it says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan is defined by its borders, your south side shall be the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom. Your southern border shall, be, shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east, and your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim and cross to Zin, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar, Adar, and pass along to Asmon, and the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be the sea. For the western border, you shall have the great sea and its coast. This shall be your western border. And so we see that this is the breakdown of how the land is going to fall. And let's finish with 13 through 15. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, this is the land you shall inherit by a lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and the half-tribe. For the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by father's houses has received their inheritance and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. And so we can now look at a map and we can see. We can see the contrast. What you see is the green area there is what was just delineated in Numbers. The purple-red line is what they had taken over seven years of conquest up to Joshua 13. It was a slow but sure acquisition of land. At this point, however, the foothold had been established. The enemy had been bound in their ability to retaliate, and enough land had been conquered of what had been promised that God starts the process of distribution before the conquest is complete. And so let's notice three major truths about what we see in our text. You can write these down if you're taking notes. The first thing is that it was an inheritance promised by God. The inheritance that you see and that is going to be conquered is an inheritance promised by God. Second, it was an inheritance guaranteed by God. An inheritance promised and an inheritance guaranteed by God. And third, it was an inheritance that in that moment was not fully realized. It was promised, it was guaranteed, but it was not yet fully realized. It was here, but not yet. It was promised by God, as we've just seen throughout Scripture, Genesis 15 and all the subsequent declarations of God, all the way through the details we just looked at in Numbers 34. God said, this is the inheritance I have reserved for you. I promise it to you. And it was then guaranteed by God. In the text of Numbers 34, it seems as though the Canaanites will only be vanquished by the work of Israel as it's empowered by God. But then go back and look at Joshua 13 with me. Go back to where we are in Joshua. It's not just the work of the Israelites. Look at Joshua 13, verse 6, and see what it says there. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misfaroth, Maim, even all the Sidonians. Notice what it says next. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Who is it that's doing the driving out? It's God. God calls them to obedience, but he is the one that is accomplishing it. It's the Lord. He's the one that's guaranteeing it. You see, one might be able to promise something as an outcome, but then not deliver. But how can someone promise and guarantee that outcome? Because they themselves are the one that will bring it about. They are the ones that will put their life on the line, so to speak, to bring it about. The Lord, through the ordinary means of his people's obedience, was going to bring about the very inheritance that was promised. But lastly, though, not only is it promised, not only is it guaranteed, but in Joshua 13, we've come to this apportioning of the inheritance. But we notice that it's an inheritance that is not fully complete. Israel would need to wait until the coming king that would unite the entire kingdom King David, to get the vast majority of the section that was promised in Deuteronomy, the section that you see in the map there in the green. And ultimately, even pieces of that would not fully be conquered, and so they would need to wait until the ultimate king, the ultimate Messiah, the one we know as King Jesus, would return and completely remove the enemies. And we're still waiting for that day. In this imagery of Joshua, we see a prophetic picture of the inheritance not only that has been given to Israel, but of the inheritance that all the world has in Christ. Remember that Joshua falls into the section in the Hebrew canon of Scripture that is called the former prophets. This is a prophetic book. It, along with Judges, the books of Samuel, and the books of Kings, form this group of books in which Israel is led by a prophet figure and speak not just to Israel's past, but foreshadow the inheritance of the perfected kingdom to come of God's people. From the book of Genesis onward, God promised that his people would subdue not just the land of Canaan, but the whole earth. In Abraham, God promised that all the families of the earth, representatives from every nation, would receive an inheritance from God. And Israel and their inheritance was just simply a base camp of that promise. When Christ came, he was clear that the inheritance was not just the land of Canaan for Israel, but for the whole earth, for the citizens of God's kingdom. Christ was clear that the meek that followed in his name would inherit the whole earth. But God didn't just promise the eternal inheritance of the whole renewed earth to his people. He also guaranteed it. And as with Joshua the prophet, this guarantee meant God himself would need to bring it about. And so God became flesh and dwelt among humankind He alone stormed the gates of hell and defeated the kingdom of darkness and the reign of Satan. He alone bound the enemy and limited his ability to deceive. He alone is doing the work of driving out the enemy from before us. He alone is empowering his church to proclaim the gospel. Amen? Amen. And this is why the inheritance of eternal life and the kingdom of God is guaranteed to those that are in Christ. Because he alone can guarantee it. This eternal inheritance has been promised, it has been guaranteed, and like Joshua and Israel, it is also a kingdom that is not fully accomplished yet. It has been apportioned out through the Holy Spirit, but it also has territory still to be conquered, amen? Amen. It's this idea that sits behind the call to God's people to be sanctified and grow in holiness. Our victory is assured, but it is not complete, and so we fight each and every day. Did you hear that, church? There's not a second to rest. There is not a moment to back off the gas pedal. We fight each and every day to conquer the deceit of the kingdom of darkness in our own hearts, in our own minds, and in our own church. friends, we have an eternal inheritance that has been promised by our God. It has been guaranteed by the work of Christ in death and resurrection. It's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit that convicts and draws us to Christ. It's confirmed in the fact that the kingdom can be seen in the local congregations that gather the world over every Sunday, but it is not yet the fullness of the kingdom to come when every tribe sings his praise. It is here now, and it is coming to completion, but we must not grow weary in the fight because there is still territory. There are still hearts and people to be conquered in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Friend, what is the territory within your own heart, within our church, and who are the people to whom we have been called to minister and evangelize with the gospel? Right now, the Lord is impressing upon your heart someone that you have been called to conquer in the love of Christ. Who is it that you will evangelize this week, piercing with the sword of the Spirit through the word of God? These are the unconquered territories for which Christ has given us a foothold in the kingdom from which we can continue to wage the good warfare. And as we wage war, a war that is subversive through the love of the gospel, we can have confidence in this promised, guaranteed and assured inheritance to come. Not only because God has guaranteed it, but also because, our next point, it is an inheritance given by God's grace alone. And that's the good news, friends. It is not based off of us. It's based off of God's grace. If it were due to our ability to be victorious, we would have cause to fear. I know I would. That the outcome would be unsure. But because it is an inheritance given by God's grace alone, we can know that what has been promised is also assured. Verse 7. End it with God's command to begin allotting to each tribe. But let's now step back in and read the first few verses of the next section, 8 through 13. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, all the tableland of Medaba as far as Dibon, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundaries of the Ammonites and Gilead and the region of the Gesherites and Maccathites and all Mount Hermon and all Bashan to Salakah, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edrei, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out, yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Gesherites or the Maccathites, but Geshur and Macath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. We're seeing, we see first here, and we're given first, the summary of the ter- territory allotted to the tribes on the east side of the Jordan. And then we will be given a summary that gives uh, all of us uh, all the territory on the west side. And then he will break it down into specific allotments by tribe. And again, we think, this is going to be dry. But scattered throughout the sections, detailing the boundaries of each allotment, there are individual stories that break up the monotony and cause us to stop and take notice. We'll be moving along in the rhythm of reading these names we can barely pronounce, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's this story, and God wants us to take notice. Because each serves as a reminder to the first audience and to us, but especially to the first audience that was locked in conflict with surrounding nations, that they could be assured of the inheritance, because it came not just from their efforts, but from God's grace alone. Each of these stories call to mind God's faithfulness in spite of man's faithlessness. So let's look at two that are mentioned here. First, we have the story of the tribe of Levi. Would you read with me verse 14? To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. Look all the way down to verse 33 that we already read. But the tribe of Levi, to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. For the first Jewish audience, the tribe of Levi would bring to remembrance God's grace. In Genesis 34, we we, uh, saw the tragic story of Jacob's daughter Dinah as she was raped and defiled by a pagan man named Shechem. Shechem then sent his father Hamor to try and get her as his wife. But when Hamor spoke to the sons of Jacob, they deceived him and said they could only allow the marriage if the men of Shechem's city were all circumcised. Pretty terrible wedding gift, if you ask me. But then they would enter into covenant with them, at least they said, and Dinah would be given to Shechem. In reality, they had no such plan, and when the men of the city circumcised themselves and were out of commission, so to speak, Levi and Simeon led an attack on the people and killed the men and plundered the city. And Jacob's response to his sons in Genesis 49 was to curse them upon his deathbed and inform them that they would be scattered in Israel as a curse. For the tribe of Levi, their sin of vengeance and deceit had resulted in being cursed from the covenant of the patriarchs of Israel. In fact, it seemed as though they would have no inheritance. But then the book of Exodus, chapter 32, tells us the story of Israel worshiping the golden calf and idolatry. And Moses cries out for someone to step in and bring justice upon Israel and purify the camp. The tribe of Levi responds, They would be the ones to execute discipline upon Israel and took it seriously enough that they went throughout the camp and brought the sword upon any who were engaging in pagan idolatry. Their zeal for God's holy name was rewarded, and they were promised a blessing for it. And so in his deathbed blessing, Moses promised that the tribe of Levi would be the tribe of priests that acted as the mediators between the people of God and God's presence in the tabernacle. Take a look at Deuteronomy 33 here. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They, the tribe of Levi, shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Friends, the story of Levi is a story of redemption from no inheritance to the most beautiful inheritance that could ever be. And so now in Joshua 13, as the inheritance was being handed out, Levi would not receive a large portion of land. They would receive something even better. For they would be scattered throughout the other tribes, receiving cities across the countryside, in which they would operate as the priests of Israel, presenting sacrifice on behalf of the people and pointing them to Yahweh. And as a reward, they would receive provision directly from the people in the form of their offerings and tithes. And so, in a way, Levi inherited the whole land and all the people in it. But they did so only through their service of the Lord and his people. Friends, the story of the tribe of Levi is a pointed story, of God's beautiful redemption. We can notice too that the statements of Levi's inheritance in verses 14 and 33, notice that they're the bookends on the section in between that has all of these boundaries and talks about all of the inheritance on the east of the Jordan. And this makes sense because it was only in so much as Israel stayed faithful in their covenant relationship with Yahweh through the sacrificial system administered by the Levites that the land would truly be their inheritance. They needed the bookends of the Levites and the sacrificial system to then inherit everything else. It was the priestly and mediatorial work of the tribe of Levi that would keep Israel in connection with the one who provided the inheritance. What a beautiful picture of the inheritance of every follower of Christ. For it is true that Christ has promised us and guaranteed us the inheritance of the renewed heaven and earth and eternal life. But friends, the physical inheritance itself is not the actual goal. I worry when I hear brothers and sisters so excited for that place in heaven, that mansion, right? Uh, As certain songs from a couple decades would talk about all the fun things we'd get to do in the mansion we'd inherit, right? You guys know the song I'm talking about. (laughs) But friends, that inheritance is merely a side effect of being in relationship with the king and the creator himself, Jesus Christ. And that's why the author of Revelation pictures the renewed heaven and earth as a city and gives great beauty. And we think and wonder about that beauty, but the main point in the, the city in which we dwell, the main thing that will attract our attention is not the beautiful trees or the river or the fruit, it's Jesus Christ himself. Notice what it says in Revelation, Revelation 21 22 through 24. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Friends, just as with Levi, the inheritance that the heart of the Christian longs for is that of Christ. For without Christ, all that we could inherit is worthless and futile. But with and in Christ, man, the entirety of creation has been given to us, and we will rule and reign with him forever. Amen? Amen. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our reward. And Christ has given us this reward freely and without merit by his grace alone. And because we have been given this inheritance, we, like Levi, have been scattered throughout the land to proclaim the glorious redemption of the cross as the sacrifice that brings redemption and reconciliation to the world. And if that is not enough of a picture of God's inheritance given by grace alone, God gives us another picture in this section to remind us of this fact. As you read through the section in between the bookends of Levi, there's a quick mention given of Balaam when discussing the inheritance of Reuben, including a place called Beth Peor. Would you look with me at Joshua 13, 22 through 23? As we go through and see this listing of boundaries, verse 22 then picks up and makes us pause. It says, Balaam, also the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben, of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. Now, if you will recall, when Israel was moving through the wilderness, Balaam, was recruited recruited by a king called Balak who desired a pagan priest to come and curse Israel so that he might defeat them in battle. But after an odd journey that we all remember from our Sunday school classes because it involved an angel with a sword and a donkey who rebuked him, Balaam arrives to curse Israel. But every time he opens his mouth to curse Israel, a blessing comes out. And Balak was obviously angry over this, and so Balaam said, well, I can't curse them, so let me give you an idea. You can use your women to seduce the men of Israel into pagan worship. Satan doesn't have a very thick playbook, so he's still using the same thing today, right? (laughs) The result was catastrophic, as God disciplined the people with a plague that was only abated when those who participated in the pagan worship were killed and Moab itself was conquered by Israel. If you want to read more about it this week, you can. You can read it in Numbers 22 through 25. Now, For the first audience who would be reading this in Joshua amidst these boundaries, they would pause and they would ponder and they would think about the memory of Balaam because it was a powerful one. You see, in that story, you have a clear picture of the perverse and sinful heart of the people of Israel that was no different than the nations around them, ready at the drop of a hat to give in to idolatry. And at the same time, the story evokes the memory of God's faithfulness in spite of their faithlessness. For it was God who spoke through the mouth of even the pagan prophet Balaam to pronounce blessing upon the people who would forsake him mere moments later. For the first audience, the story of Balaam was one of great conviction and great gratitude because it was the story of God's grace. God's grace without any merit of their own. God's grace alone. Now, with each of these stories scattered throughout this seemingly dry listing of boundary markers, and there are others we could go through, we just don't have time this morning, the first audience was reminded that the inheritance of Israel was not one merited by their sacrifice or warfare. It would be easy to say, look at what we've done. We have sacrificed and done all this work, and forget the fact that it was actually the Lord that was driving out the nations. We do this today, don't we? Look at how righteous I am. I have not sinned in two and a half minutes. (laughs) Praise God, I've finally made it. And we forget that it's actually the Lord that gave us that two and a half minutes. It's the Lord who, through the providence of his work in our lives, is using ordinary means to sanctify us and grow us. And so these Israelites would be reminded of the inheritance of Israel not being merited by their work or warfare, but by God's grace alone. And rather than fighting on behalf of Yahweh in order to earn that grace, they would be fighting in response to that grace given to them freely. As we read this fulfillment of God's promises, we too can be reminded that our inheritance is by grace alone. Would you turn with me to our second reading that Heidi read to us this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at it again. You guys still with me? Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious, what's that word there? Grace, Grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, the beloved Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Notice the tense there, folks. Do we already have it or are we working and meriting it? No, we already have it by his grace. Brothers and sisters, we have been promised an eternal inheritance through the new covenant of Christ's blood. He has become a high priest that speaks of a better covenant than that mediated by the Levites. His redemption happened once upon the cross, and it has forever cleansed his people from our sin so that we might be forgiven now and reconciled now to our Creator. This inheritance is not something we have earned. It is all by God's grace alone. How good and gracious God has been to us that in spite of our lack of faith, in spite of our blatant sin, he has bestowed an inheritance upon us that cannot be shaken because he has made us his adopted children. And he has given us a guarantee through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that has joined us to him and drawn us into this local congregation of his people. And so we now wait in the midst of a kingdom that is established but not yet complete. And as we wait, we war against sin inside of us and within our congregation until we acquire possession of that inheritance to the praise of his glory. Like Israel and their inheritance of the land promised by God, our inheritance of eternal life in Christ's restored kingdom is by grace alone. It has been promised, it has been guaranteed, and it is assured because it is given by God's grace alone. What a benevolent and good God that he reminds us of this in such explicit detail, that he would lay out the boundary markers in detail. And we see this now as we step into the summary of the inheritance on the west of the Jordan, as in, and as we begin looking at the, indivi- uh, excuse me, individual inheritance of each tribe. In doing so, what we'll see quickly in chapters 14 and 15 is that God fulfills His promises in every way. God fulfills his promises. In every way. Would you go back to Joshua and read the first two verses of chapter 14 with me? And I would encourage you again, if you haven't already this week, to go through and read this on your own to see the detail in which God uses. But don't worry, we're not going to be in trouble with God just because we're not reading through every boundary marker, okay? For those of you like me who come from a Calvary Chapel background where we need to read every verse or we might go to hell, you're going to be okay, all right? We're still getting the idea, okay? Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit inherit, excuse me, their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. And then it continues on, and we see God's promise and guarantee and God's action to bring it about and the moving of the lot to fall to the appropriate tribe. Now, as I read this, as you can read down on through chapter 14, I have to admit that I begin to detach from the meaning again. For again, we do not have as close of a tie to these landmarks, and we're not the first audience Jews. It becomes hard then to apply this to our lives. And even though we can see that it's a picture of eternal inheritance, yes, you might say, I know that God's people will be saved. I know that it's a picture of that, but what about the personal aspect of it? Because at the end of the day, we each individually are responsible for applying it in our lives. And so we ask the question, I know the people of God will be saved, but will God save me? I know as your pastor that many of you struggle with this daily. I know that those people that I gather with on Sunday will be saved, but what what about me? I wonder. And so I'm so thankful that God saw fit to place at this point of the story a story of a personal level, a story of personal inheritance. And so I'm thankful that God shows us this. And he uses two stories scattered throughout this section of chapters 14 and 15 to do so, the story of the family of Caleb. Let's read the first section now in Joshua 14, 6 through 15. It says, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness." Now behold, I am this day 85 years old. Man, that's patience, is it not? (laughs) I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. And so as we look at this, and as we see this, we see this personal, individual story of one family, one man, within the tribes of Israel. Now you might remember that Caleb was first mentioned as one of the spies sent out to scout out the land of Israel. We're reminded of it here. Numbers 13.30 records Caleb's courage and faith when it says this, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, "'Let us go up at once and occupy it, "'for we are well able to overcome it.'" And this was in op- it was in opposition to Caleb and Joshua's advice that they should go forth and conquer, that the other spies and the people of Israel then cowered in fear in response to his statement, and they said that there were giants in the land. And as a result, God promised the judgment of wandering in the wilderness until the faithless generation died off. But to Caleb, Caleb was different, To him, God promised an inheritance. Look at Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now here in Joshua 14, we are 45 years later from this quote. And Caleb has faithfully been by Moses and then Joshua's side as they wandered and as they battled. Can you imagine what he had seen? Can you imagine the patience he would have had to hold on to throughout this entire time? And as the inheritance is being given out, Caleb comes and says, May I have the the inheritance promised to me? And I will faithfully respond by continuing the battle and removing the remaining enemies. It seems a bit presumptuous, at least in my reading of it, but not when you recognize the repetition of the description of Caleb. Three times in this chapter, and friends, the only three times in this book, is the description that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Wholly followed Yahweh. And again, in the quote we just read from Numbers 14, it says that he wholly followed Yahweh. It was only because of the truth of this statement that Caleb could go to Joshua and request that the inheritance be given, only because he had wholly followed God. Friends, what great news is it that while you and I cannot do that, we cannot go to God and demand anything because we have not wholly followed the Lord. You and I can look to the one of whom we can say, in his life, ministry, death, and resurrection, he wholly followed Yahweh. For only Jesus lived a sinless life. And this picture of Caleb is a picture of the one who wholly followed Yahweh. Only Jesus sacrificed his own life to conquer the enemy and grant us an inheritance. And only Jesus is the link between the old generation that was under the curse of the old covenant and the new generation, which can fully understand and see with our eyes the inheritance that has been promised to us. It is only the presence of Christ in the midst of his church that will eventually drive out the enemies and bring true rest from the spiritual warfare we encounter every day. And only Christ, the New Testament tells us, is the first fruits of the resurrection, the first recipient of the eternal inheritance. He alone is capable of going before the father and saying, it's time to receive the inheritance and then apportion it out to each of his offspring. And this last truth that he apportioned it out, it is seen in the second half of the story of Caleb that we see in Joshua 15, verses 13 through 19. Would you turn there with me? 15, 13 through 19. It says there, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave Caleb, uh, gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath-sephir and captures it, to him will I give Aksah, my daughter, as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, as wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now again, we have a hard time wrestling with this because we don't know the geography. But here we have the story of Joshua and how he became the ordinary means through which God fulfilled his promise Uh, uh, the story of Caleb and how he became the ordinary means through which God fulfilled his promise. There was this intermingling, as we've seen already, of the spiritual and the natural, the divine and the physical, the free agency of man and the divine providence of God. But notice that it is not just Caleb that goes to war. He enlists others within his tribe. He receives the inheritance first, but then he asks others to join with him. And the reward that will be given to the one who is faithful in the battle is the hand of his daughter as bride. Othniel takes the challenge and is successful, and Caleb gives his daughter to him as a bride, further cementing their relationship. But we see this odd detail that is thrown in. Aksah, his daughter, then asks Caleb for two specific springs of water among the land they have been given. For you see, the land that Caleb had inherited was a very arid land. And so Caleb would need to use these springs of water in order to make it fruitful. Without it, it would be dead. And so Caleb confirms and affirms this request so that they might reap the full fullness and fruitfulness of their inheritance. Among all these lists of large areas of land, why would God's inspired words suddenly zoom in clearly to Caleb's family and further to his offspring and further to these simple springs of water? Well, I suggest to you that the greater theme of this story is to continue the simple truth that while God has promised an eternal inheritance to all his people, He will fulfill his promise to each of his adopted children in every way so that each might have springs of water welling up to eternal life. He cares about the details. He cares about the church, yes, across all time and space, but friends, he cares about each and every one of you and your part in that story. He cares about the details. He cares about the details that you think he's seemingly forgotten. And he will make good on his promises to each of his children. You can guarantee it. We just need to make sure that we are counting on the promises he has made, not the promises we have wrongly placed upon him. Now, just as each Israelite is presented, or represented in this story of Caleb, each Christian is represented in the inheritance given by the Father God to Christ Because of the work of Christ in salvation, each and every one of his offspring will receive an inheritance in the renewed heavens and earth that was promised in Ephesians and elsewhere. Each one of us are given, in essence, the bride of Christ because of his faithfulness and because of his conquering. Brothers and sisters, God fulfills his promises in every way, and he has promised you this. Look up at the screen. This is from 1 Peter 1, 3-7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's a hope that goes on through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it does not go away. Undefiled, it's perfect, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, you have been promised an eternal inheritance of life together with God and his people in a renewed paradise of a restored creation. Have you started to maybe flounder in your faith that this inheritance is real? Have your circumstances and the length of time you've had to wait in your life, has it started to make you wonder if maybe all this stuff in this book, maybe it's kind of far-fetched? Perhaps you've started to hedge your bets like the prodigal son by accumulating what you think is your inheritance, but you've started to accumulate it right now. And that way, if all this stuff in this book turns out to be wrong, you at least lived it up a while in this life. Friends, if that is you this morning, and I think we all go through moments of that in our life, I ask you to take stock of the faithfulness of Caleb that pictures the faithfulness of our Lord. He underwent a life of human temptation and pain, endured the cross, despising the shame so that he might inherit the kingdom of the Father that was prepared for him, so that he might take his bride to be one, so that he might be united in covenant love with you and I. Friends, when you fail in your faith, look to Christ, who is perfect in his. He is the proof that we need. He is the guarantee that this inheritance, it is real and it is coming. Don't grow weary in well-doing. If you're struggling in your faith this morning, go back this week and read through 1 Peter 1 and Ephesians 1 and look at what has been promised to you and then meditate on the cross and the resurrection and know that that inheritance is real. It's prepared and it's waiting for you. It's guaranteed, it's promised, it's coming, and it's given by God's grace alone. But friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not accepted his authority as king over your life, you need to know that the Bible is clear that there is only one inheritance that is laid up for you, and that's an inheritance of eternal separation from God and all his creation in eternal damnation. You see, unless he adopts you as a child, you are not a child of his and therefore will not receive the inheritance. And so please, this morning, look with me at the record of evidence of God's faithfulness among his people and accept his faithfulness to you in calling you out of darkness and into the light of his truth. If that's you this morning and you want to know more about how to follow him and accept the inheritance that he has prepared for you, one of us pastors would love to talk with you after the service, or you can talk with any of our members about it as well. And for the rest of us this morning, we need to see both the forest and the trees. We've covered a lot of ground, but the story before us is the story of unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. To the Jews standing there in the book of Judges, reading the book of Joshua, standing amongst the ground uh, that was promised to them, that was given to them, they would see it as unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. And so I want you to pause for a moment and look around at the people around you. Go ahead, do it. Look around at the people around you. You stand amidst the conquered territory of the king. The people you see that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior are unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. These stories we see here intermingled with the listing of boundaries for the various land inheritance shows us that the inheritance was assured because it was an inheritance promised and guaranteed by God. It was an inheritance given by God's grace alone, and God came through on his promises even down to the smallest detail as he provided for the individuals within the tribes. And so as we walk away from this text this morning, we can see a beautiful image of the eternal inheritance God has provided for us. From the beginning of this book until the end, the promised inheritance God has given us is his alone to give. And it is given not due to our merit, but due to his grace. It is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, present in his word and here amongst his people. And I think that if we look at our own lives and we look at the people around us and we look at this church body and the church bodies we know in this region and in the world, we see the redemptive arc of the story that God is faithful. God is faithful even when we have been faithless. And God is faithful even when our circumstances seem to say the opposite. Maybe this morning you might hear this through and think, maybe for all the rest of you, But you might say, I know the mess I've made of my own life and the hurt that I have caused to others. I'm right there with you. I know my own faithlessness, and I'm sure you know yours. But hidden among this seemingly dry detail of these sections is a simple truth. For not even six chapters earlier in Joshua 7, we witnessed the horrific sin of Achan and his family, the destruction it caused among Israel, and the judgment that came upon him and his family because of it. Do you guys recall that story? This judgment landed upon him amongst all the tribe of Israel in a valley called Achor. And that valley, friends, is listed in the tribal inheritance of the tribe of Judah in Joshua 15.7. Notice it there. It's in the south side of the valley, the valley of Achor. Only God could take a situation as grim and horrible as what happened in the valley of Achor and turn it so that it might instead be evidence of the faithfulness of God amidst the inheritance he gave to the tribe of Judah. And so Judah would stand in that valley and know the redemption and the faithfulness of God. From this tribe, the tribe of Judah, would arise one named Jesus, and from his perfect obedience and holy following Yahweh, he would become the perfect spotless sacrifice that would take on the sin of the world, including yours and mine, including our own personal valleys of Achor. And he died for that sin And three days later, he rose in victory. And he's proven that even our worst sin has no hold on us. And so one day, when we stand before the throne of the precious God, we will be able to declare victory in his name. And we will be able to look back and see in the narrative arc of the story of God's people and in each one of our lives that God has died, even for our most horrific sins. And the seeming world-ending moments that seem to eclipse our life, they will be overcome by God's goodness and faithfulness. And through his redemption, those moments, those valleys of Achor, they will become a footnote in the ultimate story of God's grace and faithfulness. And so if you this morning think that you are too far from God's grace, he is calling you near. And he's telling you that he has forgiven you. The story of each of our lives, the story of his church throughout time and space, it is like our text today, because it speaks of the unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness. Let's spend the rest of our time this morning and the rest of our lives relishing the fact that God, by his grace alone, has made us part of this unmistakable evidence. Amen? Amen. Let's now declare our common faith and proclaim the unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness by speaking the Apostles' Creed together. Would you stand with me? Thank you. Don't you love those moments where you're overcome by the gospel? Let's speak the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. Lord, we thank you that while each of us in this life have been faithless to some extent, most of us to a large extent, we are able to turn to you, turn to the cross, turn to the resurrection, and look at what you've accomplished in your church to see the unmistakable evidence, to see the guarantee of the inheritance that we will one day receive. We thank you for your work this morning and your word that you have laid out in great detail the inheritance you gave to your people that you had promised and guaranteed and that you had given by grace alone and that you yourself assured by your work of driving out the enemy. Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at the example and look at what you accomplished on the cross, we pray, Lord, that you would drive out all of the sin in our lives that you would help us to be the ordinary means in our own life and in one another's life that would drive out sin and brokenness so that this church might be a holy beacon of your grace. And so this morning as we step into communion, we pray that you alone by your spirit would do this work. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.